Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the business of cannabis. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Louis Goldberg talk with the CEOs, politicians, and cultural icons driving the cannabis industry forward. This is another Lewis-only episode, though don't worry, and we'll be back next week. Today, Lewis speaks with Joe Lusardi, CEO of Cureleaf. If you're not familiar with Cureleaf, you are in for a treat. The company just completed the largest RTO, or reverse takeover, in the history of U.S. cannabis companies. Cureleaf raised more money at a higher valuation than anyone in marijuana history. Joe's been involved in the business for a long time, and his stories, along with those of Cureleaf, are fascinating. But before we get to the interview with Joe, we talked with industry reporter and writer Javier Haas. So, don't sit back, lean forward. And now, on to some news, and then our interview with Cureleaf CEO, Joe Lusardi. So, so Javier. Yeah. What is the biggest story or what is the biggest thing that we are all missing that we should all be paying attention to? Well, there's a few things. Um, it's hard to pick just one. Uh, one of my favorite stories from last week was a poll that came out of Gallup. Uh, and taking into account, this is not uh, a poll conducted by a liberal media outlet or a pro-cannabis lobbying group. This is, you know, a very well-known, very well-respected uh, polling agency that has been around for decades. And their latest poll showed that 66% of Americans now support legalizing marijuana. Um, and even a majority of Republicans, you know, are now supporting marijuana legalization, with 53% of respondents who declared to be Republicans supporting legalizing cannabis. So, you know, it, it's, it's going mainstream by the minute. Another very interesting thing that I'm seeing, and, and, and again, proves that cannabis is going mainstream at an accelerated pace, is related to capital markets, right? One of my favorite data sets is um, Viridian Capital Advisors' cannabis deal tracker. What they do is track basically every deal and as of October 20, October 19, actually, um, they had tracked $7.6 billion in investments into cannabis companies. And this does not even consider the $4 billion that Constellation Brands, the maker, uh, you know, the maker of Corona, will be making into cannabis growth because it was not yet you know, finalized. It is expected before the end of the year. It was not finalized yet. But... Even without those four billions, we've seen $7.6 billion invested into the cannabis industry this year. And this compares to less than $2 billion over the same period last year. So, I mean, the growth is exponential. And, and, and you can see it in recent transactions, right? Like, I answered this recent acquisition of MPX for like $640 million, MedMen's acquisition of Pharmacon for $680 million. The fact that, like, Verona Holdings last week, raised $120 million, and it's a company that most of us have never even heard about. Um, and, of course, the, the biggest story in relation to capital markets and cannabis going mainstream uh, is that of big cannabis companies debut, you know, making a debut in huge 
stock exchange, it's like the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, Aurora just just uh, you know uh, finished its first week of trading. Afria is scheduled to debut on the New York Stock Exchange on November second. Um, Kuralif debut on in Canada um, on Monday with a four billion dollar valuation. I mean, it's you know the numbers have become astounding. Something that that most people would have never even imagined a couple of years ago, right? Um, and I mean, there's a lot I cannot say, of course, but expect at least five or six more big IPOs coming before the end of the year. I mean, some of them are known, like Acreage Holdings. Some others are not of, uh, you know, public knowledge yet. But if you pay enough attention to the industry and look at the bigger players, expect most of the big companies going public sometime in the next couple of months, I'd say. And those who haven't, Next year, probably most of them will. I mean, it's one of the best ways to raise cash right now with valuations going crazy. Many of them not even based in fundamentals, just, you know, people speculating on the potential of the industry or on the fact that, you know, many of these companies could become acquisition targets. Even the largest companies, the ones valued at $4 billion, $10 billion, are still acquisition targets. It's not like another cannabis company will come in and buy it, probably, who knows. But there's definitely interest from um, players from outside the industry. Uh, call it Coca-Cola, call it, uh, you know, Altria, the maker of Marlboro, right? Or call it Constellation Brands. Um, those, to me, are the, 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 the biggest trends this week. A, a lot of people are talking about uh, cannabis-infused beverages. I, it, I think it does have big market potential. I'm not so much of a product guy, but I do see the financial um, potential of this play. And, of course, it was uh, largely what motivated Constellations, this big investment in canopy. Um, so, joking... Yep. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, you just completed what um, looks like the largest uh, raise in U.S. cannabis history, a $400 million RTO on the Canadian Stock Exchange, which is equivalent to about $520 million Canadian. Um, tell us about what the process was like to raise all that money. It was very challenging, to say the least. Um, it requires a tremendous amount of work from a lot of talented people, including lawyers and accountants. And uh, so there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes to create disclosures and do all the legal work. And then, um, you know, we did a three-week roadshow where we uh, bounced around the globe and met with some of the most sophisticated investors in the world to tell our story. And, uh, you know, the good news for our company is we got a great reception. And I think people had a, um, a level of sophistication around the topic that allowed them to make an investment in the company. So, um, you know, we're certainly humbled and pleased by the reception and, and, and tend to uh, create a lot of value with that capital. So you're the CEO. Of, I am. Uh, you are. Yeah. <laughs> you are the CEO yeah. um, uh, of Curaleaf. And, you know, up until recently, you have relatively been somewhat of a stealth company. Can you talk about what Cureleaf is? You know, what differentiates you from other companies? You know, what what is Cureleaf? Cureleaf today is a vertical cannabis operator. Um, we're operational in ten states, primarily on the East Coast, although we have extended our brand into the into the West Coast, and we'll continue to do so through acquisitions this year and next. Um, and we have a footprint on the East Coast from Maine all the way down to Florida. 
Uh, we operate the largest retail network under one brand, Cure Leaf, which is the Cure Leaf brand. And um, we're vertical. And so what that means is that we cultivate, manufacture which is the products and dispense them in the states in which we operate. Um, in most instances, particularly by uh, law in Florida and New Jersey, for example, we only sell Cure Leaf products. So if you walk into a Cure Leaf store, you'll find over 250 SKUs of different products. And those range from flour to vaporizers to topicals and tinctures and oral formulations. So um, it's a complete offering of cannabis-derived products. And you've been in the cannabis industry for a long time? Yeah, I mean, I started in 2009. So Maine um, passed a medical marijuana bill in 2009, and friends of mine got the crazy idea that we should look at this industry. And uh, I would say I'm a a reluctant cannabis pioneer. I never imagined I'd be uh, running a um, marijuana company, but um, it's been an amazing journey. And the thing that I've learned over the last, you know, decade being in the space almost is that, um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of um, support for the for the for cannabis and, um, you know, literally millions of people around the country are using cannabis to treat some sometimes some very serious debilitating um, diseases. And so, um, you know, it's a uh, huge responsibility to operate a cannabis company. We had um, 33,000 unique patients uh, serviced through our stores last month. And so um, that's something I'm, you know, very proud of. And it's a mandate I take very seriously to, you know, deliver cannabis to some truly sick people. So you, you're, you're a pioneer, right? I mean, you said it. Yeah. I, mean, I can yeah. see you with like the suspenders and the big hat, except you went east as opposed to going west. So what was Maine like? What was a cannabis Maine culture like in 2009, 2010 when you were just starting up? Yeah, well, it's really interesting in that Maine had a uh, Maine, Maine was fairly progressive on the topic, although it's a small state and under the radar. So Maine had a caregiver law for about a decade prior to putting a full dispensary law in, into place. And so, um, you know, Maine had a culture of, um, you know, Mainers supporting their neighbors and, you know, growing cannabis on a very small scale to help people that were seriously ill. I mean, you know, these are some of the most vulnerable people in our society um, that are using cannabis to treat diseases like cancer and epilepsy and, um, you know, MS. And so this is a, uh, a state that had a bit of a culture of marijuana. And in 2009, they passed a bill so they could create a, um, a you know, a dispensary network to create greater access for cannabis. And so that's when we stepped in. And, you know, to be candid, we had no idea what we were doing. I mean, I wrote a business plan based off the internet. And um, we won a license. We never thought we'd win a license. And then I reluctantly agreed to help finance it. And, you know, before you what, knew what we were you running Google a cannabis company. When you were looking for marijuana There wasn't a lot plan, of information. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of information. Honestly, it was all out of California, right? So California... Um, was very progressive on the topic as well. But, you know, only this year does California have a state regulated regime. So California, it was all local um, entrepreneurs and, and enthusiasts that were, you know, creating the industry. And so, um, you know, that's where a lot of the innovation was happening. And we, uh, in fact, you know, went out to California, studied the topic and tried to implement which what were the best practices at the time. I mean, you know, looking back a decade, what we did was fairly uh, uh, archaic, uh, uh, barbaric to a degree. But, um, you know, no one knew any better. We just did what we, you know, we could do to make the uh, make the business go. So now you're the CEO of a public company and, and you've never been the CEO of a public company before. As you were going through the process and you talked a little bit about the raising of the, the $400 million, but was there something that you learned that really kind of woke you up and said, oh, this is like, this is what it means to, to be the steward of this much money or to be a public CEO? Like, what was that process like? 
Well, I mean, it's certainly a, a, a huge responsibility, as you said. You know, Cureleaf was, um, I don't want to say in stealth mode, but we were a private company. We were capitalized. And so we were able to, you know, go about doing our business without the responsibility of having to make public disclosures and, and you know, be under a microscope. So I think that, um, you know, certainly my role is going to change. And it's a big responsibility, as you point out, to, you know, have that amount of money and, and put that to work responsibly and to create shareholder value. So that's what we intend to do. But, um, you know, I think that um, from from the RTO perspective, it was the fastest way to get to the capital markets, and it allowed us to go tell our story um, and, and take in money that will will allow us to create value and extend our business into other states that we find attractive. Um, you know, we will put to work about eighty million dollars um, over the next you know twelve to fourteen months into our own organic growth, and that's infrastructure building. Um, you know, cultivation centers, manufacturing, more retail locations, and then the rest of that money we're going to put to work into a creative M and A. So um, we've got a pretty full M and A pipeline. Um, the um, the environment for M and A is still quite good. This uh, industry is very fragmented, and so state by state, you have entrepreneurs starting businesses that um, will likely will never achieve the scale of Cure Leaf. And so, a lot of times, it's logical for them to fold their operations into a bigger enterprise. And so, that's what we intend to do: is um, get out on the road and make uh, acquisitions that are creative and create value. So, back in two thousand nine, you guys were you know starting this up in Maine. Um, and there are a lot of people who listen to who are listening to you right now, listening to me, thinking, oh, I want to get into the cannabis industry. Is it too late for somebody to get in? I mean, is is the costs too high or is there still opportunity? I mean, I wouldn't say it's too late. These are, in my opinion, still early days of cannabis. If you think about, um, you know, industry estimates, you know, Arcview, for example, projects the industry to be a $75 billion industry um, and only $11 billion of that is regulated today. So there's a lot of headroom between 11 and 75 billion for people to get into the space. And, um, you know, there's 30, 31 states that now have medical marijuana programs, but certainly there's more states to come and, you know, adult use will unfold over the next couple of years. So no, it's not too um, late to get in, but, you know, certainly the level of sophistication of the operators is, is increasing every day. And I think that, um, you know, you have to recognize that having scale will be important to create a national brand. And so I think that, um, you know, like most industries over, you know, an intermediate time horizon, three to five years, the bigger, you know, multi-state operators will likely, um, you know, do- I don't want to say dominate the space, but, you know, be. Uh, yeah, I mean, it'll be like it'll be like the Barnes and Nobles versus the independent booksellers, right? You'll have you'll have the big chains that are out there that everybody's going to know and they're going to trust Cureleaf from a retail perspective. They're going to trust the product, but they may also go to their local dispensary because they have a unique brand or a unique strain that they want to try is, is that what you're yeah, saying yeah i think that's right and i think i mean another analogy could be be you know alcohol or beer for example so you could have you know mass market brands and then you might have you know craft breweries right and you could mm-hmm. have craft and you likely will have craft cannabis we've already seen that so you have a lot of uh, boutique growers that are growing some really high quality cannabis and i think that's certainly a segment of the market that will continue so um you know this is a big industry and there's a lot of space in it for for a lot of people to participate in so um, you know, that, I think that should be, um, you know, we certainly wouldn't, I wouldn't dissuade anybody from jumping in. It's still early days for sure. Would, they, would you dissuade them from going public? I mean, was the experience of taking this company public painful or was it, is it, would you do it again? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I, you know, look, 
being public is not for everybody. It's just a huge responsibility, and, and you know, it comes with a lot of um, you know pros and cons. And so, uh, you know, it's it's something that um, we take very seriously. And uh, you know, I think you have to really make sure you know what you're getting into. It's a it's an awesome responsibility to take you know money from over a hundred institutions, some of the biggest money managers in the world, you know, investing in Cureleaf. And so that's a big responsibility. And that's you know, as I say, not not for everybody. And you have to report your first uh, your first quarter soon. So we do. <laughs> That's going to be a unique experience for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, it, for, from my perspective, what I what I think that folks will see from Cureleaf over time is that um, this is a business that was um, found, founded on being operationally excellent. And so I think that quarter over quarter, we're going to demonstrate that this is a business that has solid revenue, solid returns. And, um, you know, I, I think that um, investors will come to recognize that this is a high quality business. Um, so you used to be Palliatech. And you changed the name to Cureleaf, and you did that only a couple of months ago. Why did you make the change? Right. So, first, let me explain what Palliatech was. So, Palliatech was um, founded by a bunch of entrepreneurs that were very forward-thinking, and um, that um, they wanted to create a device where they, you could use cannabis in a clinical setting, in a hospital setting, and you know it would be meter dosing of cannabis. And so, they spent a couple which, years. Which is still needed. Absolutely. They, so they spent a couple years um, working on that project, but they were a little bit ahead of their time, frankly. And, um, you know, they never commercialized it. But in um, about 2012, they veered into touching the plant in New Jersey by acquiring a, a vertical uh, cannabis license. And so um, Palliatech was a one state operator. And um, about two and a half years ago, I joined the firm as CEO. Um, Boris Jordan, the, uh, the executive chairman of the business, had financed Palliatech. And so um, together we developed this multi state platform that we operate today. And, um, you know, just a few months back, we recognized that we had a holding company called Palliatech and we had all our dispensaries called Cureleaf and we thought that it made sense to align those two brands and create a, um, a lot of you know recognition uh, around a single brand and so uh, we made the decision to uh, become you know Cureleaf as an operating company as well as the holding company. And now your ticker symbol is Cura, right. so you, it works perfectly, Absolutely, right? yeah. Uh, and you trade on the... CSE, yep. So we're on the Canadian Stock Exchange. Uh, we are not, because we're a U.S. touching the plant business, we cannot list in the U.S. today. Um, you know, we hope that um, as the conflict between federal and state law resolves itself, hopefully in the next coming years, we'll be able to uh, list uh, on the U.S. as well. But today we're up on the Canadian Stock Exchange, and that has become the exchange of choice for U.S. operators. So um, a number of our peers have listed on the CSE, and a few more are coming right behind us to list. And so um, that's the place where, um, you know, uh, cannabis capital is finding operators. So we're recording this on October 30th, um, and you, you started trading yesterday. Um, and while I don't want to get all, you know, deeply into to prices of stocks, it would be not realistic to to acknowledge that since October 17th, um, the day that Canada, you know, formally went uh, adult use, there's been a huge sell off in the cannabis stocks. We've seen 30, 40 percent for some shares. Um, why do you think this is? I mean, you know, and, and you know, is there going to be a rotation from Canada to the U.S.? I mean, what's going on in the capital markets? Well, I mean, first, this is an emerging business, right? And so there's going to be just natural volatility. This is not going to be for the faint of heart. 
I mean, if you're an investor in cannabis, I suggest you, uh, you know, you should be in for the long term. Stra- strap it in. Yeah, strap, strap it, it on. Because it's going it to take time, and there's going to be a lot of fits and starts. I mean, you know, we have a lot of regulatory hurdles that we have to go through in our business, and so do the Canadians. I mean, you saw that um, they've already run out of product in a couple of markets, and that will rectify itself. It's a new business, and progress takes time, and these things take a bit to get yeah, up and running. They've tapped the keg, so to speak. <laughs> exactly. But, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of enthusiasm for cannabis investing in stocks, and I think maybe sometimes it's, um, you know, irrational um enthusiasm and I rational think exuberance right? Rational, right and so it's possible the Canadian stocks were a bit overheated I mean those guys um, have a uh, huge valuations and they've got to deliver earnings to justify those things so you know we'll see what happens um, but you know from from our point of view we started trading on Monday it's our as we say it's our first day of trading not our last and so um, that probably wasn't the best day to go public the our peers shed you know 15 to 20 percent of their value on the on, uh, on the first day so um, but we think that we'll continue to uh, you know deploy the capital that we've raised and create value and so um, I think that in the in the long term Cureleaf is going to be a great stock to, to own me too by the way. Um, so you have um, stores in mostly limited license states, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts. Um, why not pursue opener? Op- opener. Uh, I, I speak pretty, don't I? <laughs> um, but more open states like Nevada or California or Oregon, or is that part of your strategy? Well, I mean, first and foremost, we're an East Coast company, right? We started in you know Massachusetts and New Jersey. And so by the way, see, we still know how to grow pot on the East. <laughs> That's right, right. Um, so you know, part of it is was a function of management focus, and we're on the East Coast. And so we really focused our attention on the East Coast first and foremost. And frankly, we find those markets to be more attractive because they are limited license in nature. There's a what I would say a balance between the supply and the demand of cannabis. And so that creates stable markets. They're highly regulated and the economics are, are better. Um, you know, if you look at markets like Washington, Oregon, California, Colorado, um, they took a different uh, regulatory approach and that they were a little bit more generous in the amount of licenses that were distributed throughout the state. And I think that you've seen a compression in margins and a lot of, uh, frankly, black market activity as a consequence. And so we've really, um, one of the, the core principles of our companies that we wanted to make sure that we operated fully in compliance with all state regulations and that we were in markets that were highly regulated. Uh, We think that's a, um, frankly, a competitive advantage. If you go into a market like New York, for example, um, we think it will be one of the best growth markets for cannabis in 2019, but it's highly... Why? Why why will New York be so good? Well, I mean, it's simple math. There's 20 million people in the state and there's uh, 10 operators and, you know, cannabis um, is now starting to um, be... Uh, be more um, uh, recognized as a valid use for uh, medical conditions. And so there are more doctors writing more recommendations. And but, but the structure of the market sucks, right? You can't get flour in New York. I mean, it's, it's a limited form factor state. Well, I mean, you know, I don't see it that way. I, I think that first and I would say that um, formulated cannabis that comes in, in oil is is certainly um, a really high quality product. It's in many cases more predictable, and um, so I think that what you've seen even in just the general cannabis space is that people are gravitating away from flour and into manufactured products. I mean, five years ago, 100% of the you know sales of cannabis were flour. 
you know, today it's 50% and, and shrinking. So I think people are gravitating more towards formulated products. And so from that point of view, I think that New York is on trend. And I think that it's really not that much of a but, limiting but factor. But New Jersey's the other side, right? I mean, New Jersey's only flower state. Well, New Jersey started their program, you know, about uh, 2012, right? And so those were different days. But, um, you know, just a couple of months ago, New Jersey, uh, for the first time, um, authorized the company a cure leaf to sell vapor pens and it's already close to 40 percent of our sales and so i think you'll see new jersey um, gravitate more towards formulated products over time as well and you know our thesis for new york is that there's 20 million people here there's 10 operators uh, and we think that um, it's it's a market that's ripe for growth and so we're actually really excited about new york as a market and i and the reason why i brought up new york was to illustrate that um it's a great market but it's going to take a significant amount of capital investment i mean we will you know dump more than 10 15 million dollars in New York this year into infrastructure um, to create a business. And so, um, you know, that's not for everybody. This is definitely um, a space where you need to have at least a level of sophistication and capital to, to ex- execute on a business plan. So you have a license in New York. Where do you operate in, this, in the state? We do. So our cultivation center and manufacturing is up at um, up by Albany and Ravina. And um, we have four dispensaries, three which are open today. So one up in Plattsburgh. We have a dispensary in Newburgh and a dispensary at uh, over in Queens at, at Forest Hills, and our fourth dispensary in Carl Place will hopefully open in November. So I'm a, a Mets fan, and you know Queens are where the Mets play. So, are, are, you know, I know you don't have to tell me, but are any of uh, are any of my players your patients? <laughs> I, I can't disclose that, but uh, I'm a Red Sox fan, so maybe we should just talk about baseball, and I can gloat about the Red Sox. You being, can totally uh, gloat about the Red Sox yet again. So you also you're you're headquartered um, in Massachusetts, we are. and that state was supposed to have converted from a medical state to an adult use state. Um, They passed a law. What the hell is going on? What's taking so long? Well, I mean, you know, cannabis is a um, controversial subject. And I think that... um, Is it? Yeah, it is. And I think we have to recognize that when people go to the ballot box and they vote for something, it sounds like a great idea. So they go and say, yeah, I'm going to vote for medical cannabis. I'm going to vote for adult use. And then I show up in your town and say, hey, I'm going to put a dispensary on Main Street. And then you think about it a little bit differently. And so, um, you know, we've seen that play out in Massachusetts and in other markets that, you know, the regulators want to go slow. They want to get it right. They want to make sure that um, the local jurisdictions have a lot of control. And they've done that. And so that all takes time. And, um, you know, how do you you, like when you guys have your local government affairs people go into communities and educate, how do they do that? How do they educate? So this is let me rephrase it to this way. How do you educate a community that you're looking to cite? A, uh, whether it be a, a, a grow, a processing facility, or a dispensary? How do you educate the local um, elected officials and the local community as to the reality of what the cannabis industry is like? Yeah, I think education, as you pointed out, is the key to the whole whole, whole topic. And so when you go into a community, um, you know, certainly this is the first time they're contemplating having a dispensary in their town, right? So first you have to explain to them what cannabis is and what it isn't and what the law requires. And I think there's, you know, a lot of people that, you know, are, I would say, say, naturally skeptical about the topic or maybe you're concerned about um, having a dispensary in their town. And so you have to basically explain to them what the industry is, how it's going to be regulated. You have to, you know, demonstrate that, you know, this is not going to be pointed towards minors. So everybody has to be over 21. They have to have an ID and it's, you know, highly regulated. And I think when you have that conversation with people, they start to understand what it's all about. And, you know, sometimes they get comfortable with it. Sometimes they don't. But um, if you look at a state like Massachusetts, for example, so 50% of the towns um, are going to allow it, and 50% are not. 
Um, they've and outright, the fifty that don't, they're going to lose that tax revenue. That's right. That's right. So, but I mean, you know, that that tells you that there's a lot of work to do, and it's definitely still something that's you know certainly controversial. And I think will take time to you know be weaved into the fabric of society. So, so you know, the history of your company, Palliatech, was it's around palliative care and cure relief. I know is really focused on um, on the medical side of the business, and while you're going to operate in adult use states. Medical is in, integrated into your uh, your DNA. Uh, how do you go about patient education? How do you go about um, educating people as to the real medical value of the plant? Right. So um, certainly, medical is a huge piece of our DNA. We have a medical advisory board that's chaired by Dr. Steve Paterno, the deputy director of the Duke Cancer Center. And we have some um, brilliant doctors that advise us on that side of the business, and we have a team of um, you know cannabis chemists that are constantly thinking about formulations that help address um, you know diseases. And, and help people manage, you know, conditions um, through through cannabis. And so, we spend a lot of time thinking about that, and that's a big piece of our our, our business. And from our point of view, we know that um, anecdotally, cannabis um, has massive medicinal benefits. We you know service thirty three thousand unique patients last month, and um, that's something I'm incredibly proud of. And and so from from that point of view, we we. We are absolutely certain that cannabis has medicinal benefits, but we need to do more research. And, and unfortunately, there's still a federal prohibition against research in the United States. And so um, we've ceded that to the rest of the world. There's amazing research happening all over the globe in Israel and Germany and Canada. And we need that research to be done in the U.S. And so that's one of the things that we're working on in D.C. is to lobby for the federal um, government to pass a law that enables the states you. Act. Well, it's not really the States Act. It's um, so Representative Matt Gates out of Florida has a bill that's working its way through uh, Congress um, that will allow um, for the research of, of cannabis in the U.S. And, and we think that's a, an important piece of legislation that has to happen. Um, you know, as I said, there are millions of people across this country that are using cannabis for medical conditions. And I'm absolutely certain that if we're allowed to do the science in the U.S., we'll demonstrate that, you know, the cannabinoids in, in this plant have medicinal benefits. And so um, that's a big piece of what we think about uh, as, a, as a company. So you guys, you mentioned the, the federal illegality and, and there's this odd structure, right? You had this national prohibition about research and development and you can't ship plants across state lines, but you're a vertically integrated multi-state operator. You have 30 plus stores under the Cureleaf name and you have, you said, 200 plus SKUs that are all Cureleaf. So how do you build a national brand when you can't ship stuff cross state lines? How not you- easily. <laughs> <laughs> not easily. You have, It's state by state. So, I mean, we are an, you know a multi-state operator, but the reality is it's a state by state business. And so in every state, we have a local management team. We have a cultivation center, a manufacturing suite. We have dispensaries and it's vertical within that state. As you point out, nothing can cross state lines. We have to be fully compliant with all state regs and um, state regs vary very state by state. And so that certainly makes the compliance function challenging and makes a lot of what we do um, challenging. But we're, you know, committed to continuing to unfold our brand state by state. And, um, you know, that won't change until there's a full rescheduling of cannabis. And so we don't think that's really in the short horizon. And and so we'll continue to be a state by state operator. But our brand will exist in in all those markets. So you, you know, let's go back to the raise for a minute, because you raised a, a, a fuck ton of money. I mean, $400 million is a lot of money. Um, and you had mentioned M&A and investment. And then you also mentioned um, how we have seeded um, uh, real R&D internationally. Would you ever think of applying some of that money to support international research? Or or I know you're talking... 
Where are you going to spend it? You're going to buy any PR firms? <laughs> no, we're, we're going to be very disciplined in how we spend our money. In that, we're very focused on the U.S. We're not going to be distracted at the moment by international markets. We're going to continue to um, be a U.S. operator. We are going to continue to invest in um, one our own infrastructure, but also making acquisitions where we can be the controlling um, shareholder mm -hmm. and make sure that we can be a purely front business. And so we'll continue to do that and. You know, from a from a research perspective, I want to highlight that we are um, there's one state in the country that has a very unique law. It's the state of Pennsylvania, where they have a clinical um, registrant program, where um, the uh, the eight medical schools in the state can partner with cannabis companies to do research uh, in cannabis. And so, we are partners with a medical school um, in Pennsylvania, and we intend to um, enter that state uh, hopefully in Q1, and we'll start to do research. Q1 in, of 2019. The, yeah, Q1 of 2019, and we'll start to do research. In Pennsylvania and we think that um, we've got some really promising research studies teed up um, one is in the area of pediatric um, um, neurological disorders which is showing huge promise as you know many children across the country that are using cannabis for Dravet syndrome and epilepsy and so we think that's exciting and we're gonna do another study um, with cannabis um, uh, for, for pain with cancer patients and so you know we're gonna do whatever we can to advance the industry on the medical front and um, you know you know, we may not this this thing. This will take time, and it will be slow mm -hmm. progress, unfortunately. But um, we're we're committed to um, you know making sure we do research and, and uh, demonstrate that cannabis has its uh, legitimate space in the medical field. So you know, you're the CEO of one of the biggest cannabis companies in the world. So what is your personal relationship with the plant? Uh, to be very candid, I'm I'm not a real heavy cannabis user. It's really not my thing. But what I would say is that you know certainly. So if I went ear, <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Yeah, uh, well, I got to operate a company, and so uh, you know, I, <laughs> and it's I, early I, in the morning. It's early in the morning, so I, I tend <laughs> to stay focused. But you know, from from my perspective, I I think that you know certainly if you're someone that has a serious medical medical condition, you know, you should you know look at cannabis as a potentially viable option mm -hmm. for for that. And um, you know, for, on an adult use perspective, I think there's a lot of people that, um, you know, relax with a glass of wine that may consider cannabis as a viable alternative. Mm -hmm. And I certainly, uh, if you're in a state that allows it, I, you know, encourage you to try it and see if it's your thing. Um, and so, you know, I think that well, make sure you buy it from a cure leaf dispensary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, I think that, uh, what's going to happen is that cannabis is going to become more mainstream over time. What you're going to see is that, um, you know, the, really the early days of adult use is, are, has been geared towards the real cannabis enthusiasts and people that I would say are, you know, probably heavier users. But I think what you're going to see over time is that, you know, um, soccer moms, soccer dads, baby boomers are going to start looking at cannabis and, and, you know, seeing it as a potential, uh, interesting alternative to possibly beer or wine or other ways that other things they used to relax. Which is why Constellation in supposedly invested in Canopy, right? Yeah, without a doubt. And I think what, you'll, what you're also going to see is that the form factor is changing. And so you're getting away from flour. You are getting into more manufactured products on the adult use side too. And, and also, um, you know, low THC products. And so you're starting to see beverages with five milligrams of, you know, THC or five, 10 milligrams. And, you know, those products aren't intended to, you know, get you, you know, ultra stone. They're intended to, you know, maybe take the edge off and help you relax or, you know, change your mood state. And I think that that's where the business is going to develop. You're going to see a lot more of those products come to market. You know, companies, as you point out, like Constellation will, will innovate in that arena. And I think cannabis will continue to become more mainstream over time. So um, 
Florida is a really unique market, right? I mean, it's medical only, but it is probably the fastest growing medical market in the country. And you have um, a, a pretty big presence in Florida. Is there anything that um, my millions and millions of two or three fans in Florida <laughs> should know about? Yeah, no, Florida is a really um, exciting market for us. So the, the market's adding three to 5,000 patients a week some weeks. It's a, As you point out, it's the fastest growing medical market, we think, in, in the country. Um, we have a license in Florida that allows us to be vertical and open up 35 dispensaries. And so we're fast on our way to doing that. We um, will open up our 14th dispensary hopefully this week in Florida, Where? Uh, North Miami. And um, we uh, will continue to lay down a significant retail footprint throughout the state to create access to cannabis. And so that's a market that we're really excited about. We opened the first drive through on the East Coast in Florida. That got a little bit of fanfare in Palm Harbor. And uh, that got a little bit of fanfare. But you know, if you, you get, is it like do you have uh, bud tenders on roller skates that come out <laughs> to the car? It's not quite that cool, but you know, the reality is it it it, um, it got a little bit of fanfare. But we're really proud of that because you know a lot of these people have mobility challenges. We have people that you know it's difficult just to get out of the car and walk into the store, hmm. and so that creates a new alternative way for people to get their medicine. They can come right to the drive-through and get and get their cannabis, and so it's uh, very convenient. Is people it like the fun- state liquor stores in like New Hampshire where you can drive through and, and is it what's that experience like? Yeah, I mean, the, so you have to make sure you, you, you have to order ahead and, and someone's there to basically, but it's really about mobility and it's really just another way for people to get their medicine that are struggling, mm-hmm. frankly, with you know a, a disease. And so people have responded very positively to that concept. So, there, you know, Massachusetts is going to change over from is in the process of changing over from medical to adult use. What do you think is going to happen to the medical patients who are in any of the states that convert from, from a medical to adult use? Do, do they just get different product or I mean, what's what's the well it's really difference? interesting i mean the what we've seen f- some from other markets is that you know the medical patients still exist, but some of those people gravitate towards buying on the um, adult u- on the adult use program instead of the medical side. F- the products are frankly, I don't want to say the same, but they're, they're a lot of the products are similar. And what we have found is that um, you know, if you think about a medical patient today, to be certified as a medical patient, you have to go to your doctor. But more importantly, for example, in Massachusetts, you have to go be on a state registry. And I think a lot of people are not necessarily comfortable with the concept of the government tracking their cannabis use. And so I suspect that when there's an adult use program, you might start seeing people that are still, you know, sick, that still want to manage their condition with cannabis. But I, I suspect some of those people will gravitate towards the adult use side of the business because they uh, um, have a healthy, healthy skepticism of the government tracking their uh, their use. Just, just I want to say on this, and then I'll have one more question because I know you have to run. But um, you know, you guys have a a deeply consultative experience for a medical patient that comes into um, a dispensary now. Um, is that the same for when a patient comes in as an adult use, or is it is it just more like a transactional experience? I mean, it, no, I think you're right. So certainly, one thing that sets us apart, we think, is that we have a um, our, our format is highly educational, and so when a medical patient walks in, they generally get a you know a twenty to thirty minute consultation, so they can learn about cannabis for the first time, and then. Even upon return visits, we spend a lot of time educating patients on the products, the form factors, how 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 they're using it for their their condition, and so that's a big hallmark of the experience today. 
on the adult use side, I suspect you know it will be possibly a little bit more transactional. But the reality is, what we're, we're and again today we're a medical business. We're only moving into the adult use uh, You're markets. You're like ninety something percent. Ninety eight percent medical. So I, you know a lot of this is theoretical at the moment. But you know we think if you know once we're in the adult use side of the business, we will continue to provide an experience where people can learn about cannabis. Um, if you look at the Cure Leaf experience today, it's really about accessibility and education, and that will I think continue on the adult use side as well. We want to make sure that we have a format where, you know, anybody can walk in and feel comfortable and learn about, you know, cannabis in a, in a very, um, I would say, um, non-intimidating uh, setting. So this is it. You're almost done and then you can get out. I promise it's not going to be painful, but we have a segment called While You Were Sleeping. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of news regularly about cannabis that out, that's out there. But if there was one story that you wish you know, the Boston Globe or the, the the New York Times or the Wall Street was covering about the industry that they're not. What should we all be paying attention to? What are we all missing? Well, I th- for me, I think what's important is that people talk, and I do too, I mean, people talk about the size of the cannabis industry, but there's not enough attention paid to the ancillary and the ripple effect of this industry. This is a massive jobs creator in this country. So, um, you know, the industry itself was $11 billion, you know, this year, but I would say by any estimate, it's two to three times that when you think about all the various trades that are involved. So HVAC, electrical, plumbing, accounting, tax, legal, this is a big jobs creator. And I think that, you know, these are American jobs and these are jobs with benefits. And so, you know, I think more attention needs to be paid to the fact that this is a, you know, a, a, an economic um, engine that we're creating here. And I think that it has a lot of value um, to the communities in which we operate. And we have, um, you know, uh, like I said, we're going to put $80 million of just infrastructure investment uh, capital to work in our company alone this year. And that's going to create a lot of jobs. And so that's something that I think more people need to talk about and recognize. And a special thanks to Joe Lasardi, CEO of Cureleaf. They are trading on the Canadian Securities Exchange or the CSE under the tickle, under the tickle. Well, I'm just going to keep rolling. So it's under the ticker, C-U-R-A. And to find out more about them, visit www.cureleaf.com or you can follow them on Twitter at Cureleaf underscore Inc. And as always, if you want to chat with us, um, send me some hate mail, some love mail, um, any mail, I'll take it. Um, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter with the handle at KCSA underscore cannabis, or you can drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. Share this so that we can have others listen to us. Um, and as always, that's one take, Shay. One take.